How is it that two people can be present at the same event and yet walk away with totally different recollections and perspectives on what happened? You know what I'm talking about? There's a movie that came out several years ago called Vantage Point. It kind of illustrates this point great. It tells the story of an assassination attempt on the president in Mexico City, and it tells the story from multiple different perspectives and angles. And you haven't had, needed to see the movie to understand how confusing that was at times, but at the end, how all the different perspectives fit together to give you a, a pretty good picture of what happened. And I bet you've experienced something similar to that in your own life. Uh, you start out telling a story, right? Some great thing that happened to you or some terrible thing, and your spouse or a friend cuts in and says, no, that's not what happened. And then they proceed to tell their version of your story. You know, you were both there, but you have totally different recollections of what went down. And I've been thinking about something similar to that this week, preparing for this passage. How is it that two people can both experience the same encounter of Jesus Christ in a sermon or in a Bible passage or like the scribes and the crowd and Jesus' family in the passage? How could they experience the same Jesus and yet walk away with such a different perspective, a different assessment and estimation of his significance. You know, one group hears the word of God preached, and the Spirit works in their heart and builds their faith, takes them deeper into God than they were before, and they leave church totally inspired. I got to be different because of what God showed me today. But the other group leaves unmoved, and unchanged. They, they wasted their time. How is that possible? How can that be? Well, our passage forces each of us to ask how we leave when we encounter Christ. Who, how are we going to respond? You know, are we going to be like the people who for the past 2,000 years have heard the gospel message and not done anything with it? Or are we going to be the people who take hold of Christ and do God's will and be introduced into his family? This passage highlights the dangers of our misconceptions, having the wrong idea about who Jesus is. But at the same time, it reveals to anybody who has ears to hear, anybody who has ears to hear, what is the distinguishing mark of a true disciple? So I hope as we work through this passage, it's kind of a bear, and I've wrestled with it all week trying to figure out how to present it to you and what God wants to say. But this is the point, okay? And if you get nothing else but this big idea, hang on to it, all right? While the world tries to explain Jesus away, true disciples recognize his significance and respond with repentance, faith, and obedience. The world tries to explain him away, True disciples recognize his significance and respond with repentance, faith, and obedience. This passage is kind of a bear because it's the first instance in Mark's Gospels of this interesting literary technique that Mark uses. You may have noticed there are two scenes happening simultaneously. He starts a story, and then he interrupts himself and tells another story, and then picks the other story back up. New Testament scholars call this intercalation. He intercalates two stories. 
But they gave it another name too, which I prefer. It's called a Markin sandwich. And so this Markin sandwich is going to show up time and time and time again through Mark's gospel. And since we're going to be in here for the next 10 years, get used to it, okay? Because uh, you're going to see it an awful lot. And the reason Mark uses it, I think, is because something in these two stories matches up. Something goes together about them. And so he tells it this way to draw our attention to the similarity. Even though two separate groups are mentioned, and it's even two separate, separate situations and series of events, something about them is the same. Some theme arises to the surface. And so he wants us to think long and hard, to even, we might say, contemplate the similarities between the two stories so that we can understand what Jesus is trying to communicate to us. And in this case, Mark wants us to observe the dangerous misconceptions about Christ that are present in his own family and in the scribes from, the, from Jerusalem. Right? And so he, he takes this first misconception from Jesus' family. And it's interesting. They're called his own people. His own people here that Jesus is back in Capernaum, surrounded by crowds, uh, and they set out from Nazareth, determined to bring him home by force if necessary. Because they're convinced he's out of his mind. He's out of his mind. He's lost his senses. The word in Greek actually means to lose your ability to think or reason correctly. He's out of his mind. I think if we were going to put it into our language, the vernacular you and I use, we'd say something like this, Jesus lost it. He's lost it. He's gone off the deep end. From his family's perspective, they thought that Jesus had gotten so caught up in the whirlwind of ministry that he'd lost his mind. He forgot who he was and what he was doing. I mean, you think about it from their perspective. He was spending all his time preaching. Like he's a carpenter, but apparently he just left his business, and now he's traveling around preaching everywhere he goes. Teaching, healing people, casting out demons, abandoned his mother as a firstborn son. You know, he has a special responsibility to her. But every time Mary needs help, she has to rely on one of his kid brothers because Jesus is nowhere to be found. He's down there talking to those people again. Apparently, the situation got so bad that he neglected taking care of himself. When you think about it, he's getting up early in the morning and praying. He spent 40 days in the wilderness not eating. He's running himself ragged, and now, Mark tells us in verse 20, there's so many people around, he can't even eat his meal. He's not, he's not even eating because he's so caught up in the pulse of ministry. And so their only conclusion is, well, he's, he's lost his mind. Add to that, this persistent and deepening conflict that Jesus has with the religious authorities. And so not only is he losing track of reality and thinks he's some kind of God or something, but he's buttoned up against the very people that his society respected as those in charge and those with an understanding of what is true and real. And he was risking bringing serious shame and dishonor on his family. And so they set out. The only conclusion, he's lost his mind. He's gone off the deep end. Listen, we're going to have to commit this guy. We've got to go put him in handcuffs and bring him home. That's how serious they are. The verb they use to bring him back is the same as to put somebody under arrest. So he's lost his mind. The only thing we can do is bring him home by force if necessary. Then Mark introduces this second story, full of its own misconceptions. 
These scribes show up. He calls them scribes who'd come down from Jerusalem. They're not the first scribes Jesus interacted with. You can go back to Mark 2.6 and 2.16 and read interactions he had with scribes in Capernaum and the surrounding area. But these guys are different. You could tell. These are scribes who came down from Jerusalem. There's an official ring to it. It's like maybe, we don't know, but maybe they were sent by the authorities at the temple who'd gotten news that there's some wandering itinerant preacher who everywhere he goes has adoring crowds following him. He's buttoned up against the religious leaders in Capernaum, so we need to go figure out who this guy is. Or maybe they're from the Sanhedrin, the council of Jewish elders who oversaw the political and religious affairs of the nation. Whoever it is, they're there on a mission. They're going to figure out what's going on. Well, you get the feel that these guys aren't neutral observers or fact finders, ready to, you know, follow the evidence wherever it leads. But they show up and immediately start throwing around these wild accusations. They have an agenda. They want to discredit Jesus in the eyes of the people, and so they reach for the closest thing at hand. They say, he's possessed by Beelzebul. Beelzebul is this interesting name. Gordon and I were talking about it earlier. Like, how are you even supposed to pronounce it? Microsoft Word said Beelzebul is misspelled. It's supposed to be Beelzebub. And that's the way Queen sang it in Bohemian Rhapsody. So I don't know. Who is this Beelzebul guy? Right? What's this all about? And you track it down and you try to understand what does Beelzebul mean? Well, it's a combination of two words. Baal. Baal. The Canaanite fertility deity who in the Old Testament was the main villain, always leading God's people astray. And then this Hebrew word, zabol, which means a lofty place or a high place. You put it together and it, and it basically means the Lord of heaven. He's possessed by the Lord of heaven. Apparently this was the way that the people in Capernaum or the Jews at the time talked about Satan, the devil himself. Listen, it's, it's conceivable that Jesus' family were overly concerned with him. They, they were genuinely worried that he had lost the plot. He'd gone off the deep end, that he'd read his own press, that he started to believe what the people were saying about him, that he was some kind of prophet or God or whatever. But these scribes were full of hate. They said, he's possessed by the devil himself. And just in case that didn't stick, they came up with another accusation. That he's casting out demons by the prince of demons or the rulers of demons. So they'd gone, and I imagine them with clipboards, taking down firsthand accounts of Jesus' powerful exorcisms. Tell me exactly what you saw. And they write it down. And after those reports start to stack up, I mean, there's dozens, if not hundreds of people been uh, exorcised, demons cast out of them. They have to acknowledge that something is going on here. Something supernatural. Couldn't deny that. But they could put a spin on it. And the spin they put was that, well, hey, Jesus is possessed by the devil, and he's working for him. He's doing the devil's work. He's casting out demons by the prince of demons. And it's an amazing thought. Where did Jesus' authority come from? How did he come up with the ability to cast out demons? Well, they said the only way is sorcery, magic, the occult. 
Both Jesus' family and the scribes had done everything they could to look at him and his growing ministry and explain it away. He's lost his mind. He's possessed by the devil. He's casting out demons by the prince of demons. The crazy thing is, people still try that kind of thing. They still try to explain Jesus away. They hear about him, read about him, do their specials on the History Channel around Easter time, try to remind us that, hey, if Jesus existed at all, and who's to really say? Uh, he certainly didn't do the things that the Bible claims he did. They explain him away, right? But who was Jesus really? And what was he up to? I think Jesus' response shows us that the misconceptions of the scribes and his family weren't simple differences of opinion. They weren't their own unique perspective. They were really dangerous. There were some consequences to holding those kinds of views about him. And so he hears the accusations, and he meets it head on. He calls the the scribes to him. Right, uh, Mark says he called them to himself and began speaking to them in parables. Now, this is the first time we've actually heard the word parable, and we're going to spend the next two weeks diving deeply into what parables are all about and how they were an essential part of Jesus' teaching ministry. But for now, you need to know parables were not unique to Jesus. The rabbis of the first century, they all used parables to teach because they're incredibly useful. They're the reason the parables of Jesus still ring true to us today. It doesn't matter who you are, where you're from, you can kind of understand what he's trying to accomplish. They're metaphors, similes, stories taken from the normal stuff of life and used by a master teacher to illustrate some deep spiritual point. So Jesus calls them to himself and begins teaching them in parables, and he wants to tell them something true, but he wants to force them to think about it, to read between the lines, to contemplate what it might mean. And he says in verse 23, Let's look at it again. Verse 23. He called them to himself and began speaking to them in parables. How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And he hears their accusations and he turns it around on them. And he says, how is this even possible? He ridicules the illogical claim. Think long and hard, guys. Come on. How's it possible for Satan to cast out Satan? That makes no sense. No human kingdom ever says, hey, you know what? No no nation ever sets out and says, hey, you know what would be a great way to spend our time and treasure? What if we went to war against ourselves? We have enough examples from history to know what happens to divided kingdoms. Polarized nations aren't long for the world. Neither are houses, and and Jesus means by that a kingly dynasty, like the house of Hanover, right? Um, What good is it if a house has all sorts of internal strife and turmoil when this cousin's killing that cousin because he elevates himself to next in line for the throne? That makes no sense. No family dynasty ever lasts when it eats itself from within. You know this. So why would Satan operate that way? Why would Satan, who has a vested interest in seeing his stranglehold over mankind hold, why would he set out to dispossess people? 
He wants to possess them. He wants to keep them under his control. He wants to make them do things that bring dishonor and shame to God. Why would he cast demons out? It makes no sense. No house, no kingdom can stand operating that way. So both accusations to Jesus are illogical. They make no sense, founded on serious misconceptions about who he is. Because, of course, as an astute reader of Mark's gospel, and you've been here for all the sermons now, you, you have enough information to assess Jesus correctly. You've seen him empowered by the Spirit and sent out into the wilderness, where for 40 days he went head-to-head in a personal confrontation with Satan and left victorious. You've heard him preach the gospel, the kingdom of God's at hand, repent and believe the gospel. You've seen evidence of his authority as he casts out demons. You know what's up. You know that every exorcism is not between Jesus and one demon or a legion of demons, like we're going to see in chapter 6. You know, it's Jesus doing battle against Satan. They were right. Satan's kingdom was crumbling, but they were wrong and that it was crumbling from within. Jesus' presence was evidence that another king had arrived, another kingdom was taking root, and he was making war against Satan. And that's what the next parable is all about, the binding of the strong man. And he asked him to think about it, and you could think about it too. You know, if a thief wanted to break into your house, but you were strong, or you were well-armed, he's not going to have much success unless he deals with you first. But if the thief breaks into your house, ties your hand up, and duct tapes you to a chair, he can make out with all your stuff. And Jesus says that's exactly what he's doing. That he's come into Satan's house, his home turf, and he's bound him up. And now he's making off with all the plunder, which are the people that Jesus is setting free. Jesus says, you're totally wrong. You're deceived. You're operating from misconceptions about who I am and what I'm doing. I'm not possessed by Satan. I'm not casting out demons by his authority. I'm acting on my own, and I'm overpowering the one who has kept you in bondage for so long. The scribes couldn't see it. Totally deceived. And it's just a sad thing, a theme that Mark brings out again and again and again, the incomprehensible inability of the Jewish religious leaders to recognize who Jesus was. They were in the best position, the whole nation, to put together the facts about Jesus, to do the evidence, like to make the notes, and then to try to figure out what they all mean. They, they should have known the prophet Isaiah, what he said in Isaiah 49. Surely thus says the Lord, that even the captives of the mighty man, the strong man, will be taken away, and the prey of the tyrant will be rescued. For I will contend with the one who contends with you, and I will save your sons." I'll feed your oppressors with their own flesh. They'll become drunk with their own blood as with sweet wine. And then all flesh will know that I, the Lord, am your Savior and your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. They should have seen and heard and processed the evidence. They were in the best position to recognize that Jesus was operating under the authority of the Spirit that he was pushing back the boundaries of Satan's kingdom and bringing in God's new end-time kingdom. And they should have bowed on their knees before him and proclaimed him as their Lord and their God. But instead, 
They spun the facts, operated off these misconceptions about who he was. And Jesus said, guys, this is not going to work out well for you. These aren't minor mistakes, differences of opinion about who I am. These are dangerous misconceptions that have eternal consequences. That's where it goes in verse 28, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, which is, I think, probably one of the scariest but strangest warnings in all the New Testament. The New Testament's full of these things, warning God's people not to deviate from the path, but to stay committed and faithful to Christ. But this one's scary. I mean, how many of us haven't wondered, like in the back of our minds, like, am I guilty of this? Have I committed the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? I mean, it's serious on its own, blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. But the seriousness of it's heightened by this introductory phrase, truly I say to you, verily I say unto thee. This is a second key feature of Jesus' teaching ministry, and it's going to show up again and again and again. But unlike parables, this phrase is totally unique to Jesus. In fact, there is literally no other recorded use of this phrase in the Jewish literature the first century. Totally unique to Jesus, and it's everywhere in the New Testament, and so uh, it must mean something. Usually rabbis would say something, if they wanted to get your attention, you know, and they wanted to draw you to the edge of your chair and make sure that you heard what they said and, and took it seriously, they would say, thus says the Lord. Thus says the Lord. But when Jesus wants to press in on his readers, on his hearers, not readers, his hearers, the seriousness of the thing he's about to say, he says, truly, I say to you. Truly, I say to you. He doesn't ground his authority in the written text, what some prophet long ago said. He points to himself, his personal authority as the true witness of God, the one who came to bear witness to God's truth. I say to you, truly, I say to you. So, listen carefully to what he says. All sins shall be forgiven the sons of men and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. That's heavy. That's heavy. But the heaviness is wrapped in a sweet exterior. Every sin and every blaspheme will be forgiven. Think about that. There's nothing you can say or do that can remove you beyond God's willingness to forgive. Every sin and every blasphemy will be forgiven. But there is one thing so terrible that a person who commits it removes themselves beyond the boundary of God's willingness to forgive. And it's the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. It's the sin that the scribes were in serious danger of committing. Uh, though I think that Jesus is holding out hope. It's a warning. So he's telling them to be careful. You're not so far gone that you can't be forgiven, but you better watch out because you're headed there quick. And the reason they were in danger of that sin was because they were looking God's activity straight in the face. 
seeing Jesus in all his veiled glory, acting under the authority of the Holy Spirit, testifying to the truth about God. They had as close of a view of the Messiah as anyone could. And they hardened their heart against him. They said, he's not operating under God's power. He's operating under the work of the devil. He's possessed by Beelzebul. The scribe should have recognized the Holy Spirit all over him. I mean, he's fulfilling every prophecy. The Spirit of the Lord's upon me to preach good news to the poor, to proclaim freedom to the captive, to open the eyes of the blind, to unstop the ears of the deaf. Everything the prophet said he was doing. And they closed their hearts to him. They knowingly rejected the salvation that God was making available in his Son. Listen carefully, I think that is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. It's not some kind of forbidden word that you accidentally say when you hit your thumb with a hammer or something. It's a persistent attitude of hostility to God that over and over and over, when the mercy of God gives you more chances than you deserve, turns your back on him. That's the blasphemy of the, that's a blasphemy of the Spirit. A person commits a blasphemy of the Spirit when they encounter God's truth and willingly harden their heart. When they hear a preacher talk about sin and the need for a Savior and say, yeah, I don't know if I buy that. Or when they maybe start to buy it a little bit and then say, oh, but yeah, but I kind of like that part of my life. That's something I enjoy hanging on to. It gives me a sense of control and makes me feel alive. I don't want to give that up. If that's what God wants for me, this God thing's not for me. And a person who persists in that attitude day after day after day after day and year after year after year after year who persists in unrepentance grows hard to the work of God. And a person like that removes themselves beyond the boundary of his forgiveness. How can you forgive a person who refuses to even acknowledge the concept of sin? He says, God doesn't care about that in my life. That's not a problem for me. You can't help someone who doesn't want to be helped, and you can't forgive a person who believes they've done nothing wrong. That's the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. I think if Jesus were here, he would press it on you. And he'd remind you that your perspective of him matters because it determines the way you respond to him. Possessed by a demon, out of his mind, I don't think you'd go there. It's hard to believe that there are many people today who would believe that, that Jesus was out of his mind or possessed by demons. But I did find a book this week recently published called The Psychedelic Gospels, The Secret History of Hallucinogens in Christianity. The author blasphemously claims that visionary plants were the catalyst for Jesus' awakening to his divinity and immortality. So maybe there are. But I think most people's misconceptions about Christ are a little bit more vanilla than that. You know, like the... CNN journalist, I don't think he works for them anymore, but uh, used to, his name's Reza Aslan, wrote a book called Zealot, uh, supposedly exploring the historicity of Jesus. And he came away believing that he was a military revolutionary, like Che Guevara or Fidel Castro, 
Then on the other hand, you got a guy like Gandhi who said that Jesus was non-resistance personified and who famously said, Jesus, to me, is a great world teacher among others. And you've probably heard people say something like that. Like, I believe Jesus was a good teacher. And the golden rule is like one of these universal principles. And if we would all follow that, like our life would be great. But I'm not sure I'm convinced that he's God or Savior or anything like that. There are other people who hold Jesus up as a universal symbol of self-sacrifice. The kind of love that we all wish we could give to anyone else. But I just wonder, man, what about Jesus gives you the impression that you can determine who he is and what he means? What, what do you see in him where he says, hey, you know, I'm a kaleidoscope. I'm a mosaic. Find that part of me that you like, and then you live by that. Jesus makes a total and absolute claim on every person who ever hears about him. We don't use Plato and make him into whatever image or likeness we want. Our understanding of Christ has to be conformed to who he says he is. And he says terrible stuff for people who want to make their own rules. He says things like, I've come down from heaven not to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. Not a whole lot of good teacher stuff in that passage, just I'm the Savior, and if you don't trust me, there's no hope for you. So there's things like the Son of Man didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Well, I love Jesus' teaching, but man, that cross stuff is awful bloody. Like, what kind of God would do that? The kind of guy who at the end of his life has the audacity to quote to the religious leaders, the scribes from the book of Daniel, behold, you'll see the Son of Man coming on the clouds at the right hand of the glory. They say, wait. Are you saying you're the Son of God? In Luke 22, 70, yes, I am. The problem for people who want to operate on their personal opinions about Jesus and allow their misconceptions to drive their belief is that it's totally inconsistent with Jesus' own claims. And C.S. Lewis made this point in mere Christianity, and I'm just going to read it to you at length. He said, a man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He'd either be a lunatic on a level with the man who says he's a poached egg, or else he'd be the devil of hell. You got to make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else he's a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come up with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. He didn't leave that open to us because he had no intentions to. So what is your perspective on Jesus? Here you have these wonderful groups in the Mark and Sandwich highlighting for you the danger of misconceptions about Christ? How do you assess his significance? Have you tried to explain him away? Shut your ears to him? Harden your heart? 
Or have you acknowledged him as your Lord and God? Beware today that you don't harden your heart. Ignore the voice of the Spirit who's showing you who Jesus is. There's only one perspective on him that's true, and it's the distinguishing mark of a disciple that they recognize it and respond accordingly. And that's where Mark brings us in this last little section of the letter. His family makes it to Capernaum, and they're outside this house, and Jesus is inside with his disciples, and the family, it's really a beautiful picture. We're going to talk about insiders and outsiders a lot over the next few weeks, and Mark illustrates it beautifully, because literally inside the house are the disciples, and outside the house is Jesus' family and the scribes who are running around with these false ideas about him. You got the disciples in a circle, observing his interactions with the crowds and absorbing every word that comes out of his mouth. Like your word is honey to my lips. That's there hanging on it, every word. And a message gets delivered. I imagine an ancient game of telephone. You know, one person passing it to the next. Your, your family's outside, they're looking for you. Your family's outside, they're looking for you. Finally, it makes it to Jesus. And he said, what was that you said? And maybe Peter, maybe Simon the Zealot. Uh, Lord, they, uh, your family's outside, they're looking for you. And, and the scriptures say he looks around in a circle. But I think what it means is he looks around the circle at the people. And the penetrating gaze locks in on each one of them. Who's my brother and my mother? And it's just hard to really comprehend what must have gone through their mind when he asked that. Like maybe he has lost his mind. Can't even remember who his mom is anymore. Who is my brother and mother? Anyone who does the will of God is my brother and my sister and my mother. That's a radical statement. A redefinition of the family unit. The people who should have been closest to him, his own people, totally deceived with these misconceptions. It's what John says in John 1. He came to his own, but his own did not receive him. But to those who did receive him, who believed in him, he gave the right to become children of God. Not born of the flesh or the will of man, but born of God. Who are his brother and his mother and his sister, but the true disciples who recognized the significance of him and who responded appropriately with repentance, faith, and obedience? Yeah, I'm sure the disciples were startled to hear that. You guys are my family now. But I think that probably meant more to them than anything they'd heard. That they'd left their family in pretty dramatic fashion, some of them. Leaving their father in the boat with his servants and their nets, and they just followed him. And later he's going to have people come and say, we want to follow you. He's going to say, you know, the person who puts their hand in the plow and his back's not fit for the kingdom. These guys had left everything to follow him, and now he was giving them the greatest gift he could imagine. Because when they'd heard Christ's message, the kingdom of God's at hand, repent and believe the gospel, they'd repented. They'd turned their back on their sin and they had trusted in him. When he said follow, they left. They might not have fully understood everything. 
They're going to grow in their awareness until chapter 8. Peter stands up and says, well, Jesus asks, who do people say that I am? And Peter says, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. They didn't understand it. They're growing in their comprehension, but they knew enough about Jesus. They had seen enough to know how they should act and respond. And as we close this morning, you know, I have had countless conversations with people over the last 15 years who were curious about Christianity, but had some questions. I stayed up late outside of a Starbucks one time till three o'clock in the morning. The Starbucks had closed, the baristas had gone, but there was this college student who wanted to talk about Jesus, and so I stayed up till three, working through doctrinal questions. Like, how are you supposed to believe in a virgin birth? Like, do you really believe God created the world in six days? But do you really believe in a place called heaven and hell? What kind of God would put his own son on a cross? You mean forgiveness like for everything? Like even a person like Hitler, if they repented of their sins, God would forgive them? I've wrestled over the doctrinal, wrestled over the ethical. You know, like, well, if this is true, then that means this in my life. And yeah, it does. That means you're going to have to change the way you live. You're going to have to put him first and yourself last. You're going to have to count everything that once meant the most to you as loss. But all that kind of stuff is a distraction. It's a diversion. As long as Satan can keep you thinking about it. You never get down to the nitty-gritty. The only question that matters... Who is Jesus? And if he is who he says he is, what do I have to do about it? The simplicity of the gospel is that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in it will not perish but have everlasting life. There are lots of implications of it, lots of things that have to play out in our lives, and it's going to look different from person to person. And I'm still glad to talk through all those doctrinal and ethical questions with anyone who asks. But if you get that question right, everything else falls into place. You can operate under misconceptions like the scribes harden your heart. Quite simply, you can hear the Spirit's voice. You can open your eyes to who Jesus is and who he says he is. And you can do what the disciples did and respond in repentance, faith, and obedience. So how will you leave here today? What will your recollections be of today's sermon? What kind of impact will it have in your heart? Will you remember a guy up on stage, animated and tearful? Or will you remember Jesus in power, revealing himself as the Son of God come to save sinners? Will you pray with me?